from Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Our good and our holy God, we thank you for your word. As we open it together this morning, we say to you humbly yet boldly, speak. Speak for your servants are listening. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. And we pray together saying, Amen. And please be seated, friends. Some of you have been coming to this corner of this city for many years and worshiping in this room. Some of you, this is your very first Sunday in this sanctuary. Over a hundred years ago, when this room was built here in the middle of Waco, Texas, it must have raised a few eyebrows. What are those people from First Baptist doing building that strange room in Central Texas? Maybe somebody even said, it looks like it belongs in Turkey, not Texas. Well, this is a Byzantine sanctuary, friends. Uh, and Texans aren't known for Byzantine architecture. But our forefathers and foremothers in this church decided that this room would be a testimony to our faith. It's a cruciform sanctuary. This room is built in the, in the symbol and the sign of the cross. So when we gather here, we're reminded that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the crucified and resurrected Lord. It's built under a dome, where we sit under a dome. Uh, most sanctuaries in Texas are kind of long and narrow. They make weddings and Lord's suppers easy, right? This room's not like that at all. We, we don't have a steeple that points away, far away to God. In, in the Western church, the Western tradition, that's, that's sort of the thing, a steeple that points away to a God that's transcendent and, and far, far away. In Port Gibson, Mississippi, they have a steeple with a gilded finger. It's a, it's a pointing finger. Uh, it's a beautiful, I mean, you know. But they wanted the Presbyterian church in Port Gibson, Mississippi, they wanted a golden finger pointing away pointing up to, hey, look it up. It's right there on the internets. But do it after lunch. We got business to take care of here. But we have a dome here. The dome is a symbol of, of, of heaven and earth drawing near. In, in Byzantine architecture, the first domes were, were placed over burial places and then over baptistries. The dual image of Jesus's baptism the death and burial and resurrection and our union with Christ symbolized in that great drama of baptism that we find our life by losing it, that we find our life by placing our trust and our faith in the death and the burial and the victory, the resurrection of Christ our Lord. So this dome was, was a, a depiction of the heavens and the earth coming together. In the New Testament, you have a, a commitment to this heaven and earth understanding of life as it really is. It sounds somewhat enchanted, but, but I think we're poor because we live in a disenchanted world. And, and there is this, this picture in Scripture of the nearness, of the dwelling place of God and the tabernacles of man. 
our Irish friends often wrote and talked and, and, and talked about the thin places, those, those gathering points where heaven and earth seemed to become very near and where the manifest presence of God was experienced. If there was a theology of thin places in the New Testament, I think John the Apostle, Apostle would be one of the champions of a theology of the thin places. For again and again in John's experience, we have this, this sort of picture of, the, of the, the veil being rent, of the heavens being pulled back, and earth and heaven colliding for just a few moments. little foretaste of what it will be like in the world to come. Last Sunday, we talked about the transfiguration scene where, where John and Jesus and a couple more friends go up on the mountain, and there they witness Jesus in his glory and his power, and they hear the voice of God saying to them, this is my beloved. You do what he says. Listen to him. In the theology of the Eastern Church, the transfiguration is, is very important because they, they worshiped in rooms like this that reminded them week after week after week after week after week that heaven and earth draws near. I think when you read the opening lines of, of John's gospel, for instance, the prologue to John's gospel, you come down to, to what we know as verse 14, and you can imagine John, this man that experienced the transcendent Christ on a mountaintop, you imagine his heart beating fast and tears filling his eyes, and he took a pen in hand and he wrote, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. You see, John had been present when God pulled back the veil and heaven tabernacled in the earth. John the Revelator in the fourth and fifth chapter of Revelation tells the same type of experience, only somewhat in reverse. Here we have the veil pulled back, and instead of heaven coming into the earth, we have someone from earth being invited to come up and see, to enter for a moment the throne room of the dwelling place of God. And in the fourth chapter of John, we have this fantastic scene of, of, of God being celebrated as the creator and the sovereign Lord of all the universe. And then the, it starts to change a bit because there's this, this large scroll with seven seals bonding that scroll. This, this scroll of the destiny of humanity, this scroll of the riddle of all history and time. This scroll is the story of the world and the story of God. And a call went out. Who is worthy to open this scroll and to look on its contents? Who is worthy? And they looked throughout the earth, throughout the heavens, and there was no one worthy. It's like that scene from Goodwill Hunting where they all crowd into the classroom trying to figure out who broke the theorem, and they all had to look around. It wasn't me. I couldn't do it. Here is all of heaven and all of earth looking around. I can't break the theorem. I, I can't prove this. I'm, I'm unworthy. I can't do it. And there was a broken heartedness in the heavens. And, and the revelator, the seer who had been invited into this presence, his heart rips in two and he begins to weep. Deep, guttural, weeping tears. 
because all of his hopes are dashed. All of his, his hunger to understand and to know, to have a, a resolution to all this fear and all this brokenness and all, it, it just, his hopes are smashed. And the seer, his brokenhearted in the presence of God, and then a strong angel booms a voice out with one command to this man, do not weep. Weep not. For the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is conquered. And as the story is told, the seer turns to look at the lion. And what does he see? He sees a lamb. This is how our God works. He is a God of surprise and grace beyond our imagination. He is a God who's wholly different than us, yet one who loves us. And he is a God of transformation. Here at this beginning of a new season, we gather in this room and we gather at this table. And it's important for us to be reminded of the central truth of the scripture, uh, the central part of the story, and the center place of human history, and that central core to our faith, to all that we think is uh, precious and good. The central part of our faith as disciples of Jesus is Jesus Christ the Lord. We need to know who he is, and we need to know what he has accomplished. And here in this scene, as the, as the veil is pulled back and we have an opportunity to sneak a peek at the very rhythm of God's universe, we get a picture of the identity and the achievements of the lion and the lamb. So for just a few moments, I want to reflect on this. The identity, the achievements of the lion, lamb, redeemer. First... What does this image teach us about God and Christ? About the God we sing about, the God we pray to, the God we worship? What does it teach us? Well, this image of the lion and the lamb teaches us that our God is a God of power. When you think of lions, you immediately think of power. For some of you, this is your first week at Baylor. I remember the first time my children went on the campus of Baylor University. The first place we took them was to the bear enclosure. I wanted them to meet the bears. We've got these sort of fun, loving bears, you know. There's great stories about the history of the bears. I used to drink Dr. Peppers and fly on planes, and, and they've broken out to swim in hotel pools. Uh, they've done that. You kind of get the notion that our bears are kind of like the Keith Richards and Mick Jagger of the bear world. They just kind of party on bears, you know, don't care. But they, they don't look all that fearsome. They look more cuddly than anything. Not long ago, though, I was on the campus of the University of North Alabama, uh, and they have an enclosure, too, on that campus, but it's a lion enclosure. And there's a little sign on the sidewalk, University of North Alabama, as you approach the lion enclosure. It says, do not bring small pets on leashes toward the lion enclosure. And I thought to myself, there was a moment in history where that sign did not exist. When they built that line enclosure, that sign was not there. And some fan, 
some fan from the University of West Alabama came to town to see the football game and they brought their little dog and that lion lost it. Lions are strong and they're fierce. And when you look at them, all you can think of is regal dignity and power. Power. Don't cry because the lion has triumphed. And he looked for a lion and he saw a lamb. A slain lamb standing, transformed, a lamb with eyes and with horns of messianic strength and power, but a lamb that had been slain. What does this teach us about the identity of Christ our King? It teaches us that His power is an odd power. His power is a gracious power. His power is a transformed power. His power is unlike our power, which is weakness. We learn through the lion, lamb, redeemer, what power really is. Scott McKnight, in his beautiful little book, The Heaven Promise, he said this, The lion who triumphed over our enemies did so as a lamb who was slain. The who of heaven is the lamb who is the lion. Years before that, W.T. Connor, in his book, the cross in the New Testament. And this book is so influential in, in Baptist life in this part of the world. He wrote, he wrote passionately and whimsically about the lion and the lamb. And this is what he said. He said, creation ruled by mere power is an enigma. One cannot understand many things that he meets in the world if God is only its creator and Lord. John presents the lion of the tribe of Judah, who, if we look at him, is transformed into the lamb slain. This means that the power that is to solve the riddle of the universe is real power, but it is redemptive power. If we are to understand the universe, theism must become Christian theism. God must become redemptive. The line of the tribe of Judah must become the lamb slain. We are not to understand from this that redemptive power will give us a rational philosophy of the universe that will satisfy our curiosity. No such rational interpretation of the world has been found. It does mean that in the world of sin and suffering in which we find ourselves, Christ crucified is the only key that will unlock the riddle. This will not be so much a rational or rationalistic solution as a practical one. It will help us not so much by giving us an understanding of evil, but by giving us victory over it. The only thing that makes sense of the crazy world that we inhabit is the death, the burial, the life, the resurrection, and the promise of the lion, lamb, savior, who is called Christ the King. Here on this early Sunday in the autumn, to be reminded of his identity is important for us as his people, as his followers. An additional thing that we need to think about is what has this lion, lamb, redeemer achieved? I'll offer you a handful of things. 
The first is that the lion lamb was slain and was raised. The language of the NRSV gets it, I think. It's, it's a guttural description, uh, the one that was slaughtered. This is a lamb that was laid down and killed, but one in the vision of John standing and standing in strength and in power. Because this is true, and friends, I believe, I believe in the deep places of my heart that this indeed is true. Since this is true, we have a victor, a champion over sin and death, disease, shame, sorrow, and evil. All of those things that have harassed us and all of our failure and disappointments. They've been buried. They've been buried. And on the other side of it, there is life because there is a Savior. What has He achieved? He has achieved victory over the world, the flesh, the adversary. He has given us life. A second thing is that the Lion Lamb Redeemer has purchased persons for God. This is the language of Revelation 5. Scripture teaches us that the wages of sin is death. The new song of heaven and the table before us remind us that our sin and the sin of the world is costly and that God is holy. The Scripture teaches us that Jesus did what He did for God and for us to bring us together. That out of His abundant love for God and for us, he gave his life, and he was given it back again, that we might live. The wages of sin is death, but, Scripture teaches, the free gift of God, the free costly gift of God, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this changes everything. This colors everything. This gives us a new set of lenses to view every circumstance and situation that we will ever face. We get to stand on this rock. And we get to lean against the rock that was rolled away. And we get to live our life at the mouth of an empty tomb. Knowing that what Christ did, He did to bring us to God and so now we live our life not on our own, but live our life swept up into the life that is God. And this is beautiful. And this is wonderful. And it has huge implications and everyday practical ones. I think many of us were deeply moved by the words that Dr. Garland recently spoke at the commencement at Baylor. One of the main reasons I'm here in town, Waco, is because of David Garland. I met him about 15 years ago, a little suburban church in Jackson, Mississippi, pastored by Steve Wells. And, and I went home and I told Mary, I said, when I go back to school, I want to go to the school that pays that man. And he became a friend. He oversaw my work, along with Dr. Cook, two of the greatest influences to bring me to this place. Recently, he spoke these words. He said, at commencement, it's traditional for commencement speakers to offer advice. Bromides that are thrown out so you can play a game of commencement bingo. I've played that game. How about you? When they say those magic phrases, for example, they'll say, be your own person. 
Well, I'd like to revise that because we're all fallen creatures. I would stay and said, strive to be more like Jesus. They tell you to follow your own dreams. I would say, follow God. And I promise you that God will take you to places and to persons you've never dreamed. They tell you to make your own story. I would say, become a part of God's story because I promise you it's going to end up better in the long run. They tell you when you fail, as we all do, when you fall, institutions, individuals, the commencement advice is get up, dust yourself off, and moved on. But I would say that you need someone greater than you to pick you up. You need someone greater than you to dust you off. You need someone greater than you who will take you through those times of failures. You need someone greater than you who will take you through the times of embarrassment that are flashed across the airwaves. You need someone greater than you to take you through the times when death hits you in the gut. You need someone greater than you to lift you up and get you back in the race and move on. You need someone greater than you to tell you that there are some races in life that are not worth running. You need someone greater to you to guide you on the right path. Those are words that can only be spoken by a man or a woman leaning on the rock that was rolled away that's known to punch in the gut by an unsudden death. And a grace that prevails in the midst of it. We need someone greater. Just in case it needs clarification, he wasn't talking about a peer that had run past us. He wasn't talking about a politician or a prophet or a preacher. He wasn't talking about the ubermensch or the superman. He wasn't talking about anybody that rode on a plane or, or came in on a white stallion. He wasn't talking about those people at all. He was talking about one. One that was greater. The who of heaven who sits enthroned. Who is the lion? Who is the lamb? Slain. Slain yet standing. With horns and eyes to see. And ears to hear. Dead yet alive. When we are in Christ, that's what it does to our life. It changes everything. And that's what Christ accomplished. He brought us to God. The third thing, the lion lamb purchased a community, a community of difference. It said these people came from every, every tribe, every tongue. Ray Summers says the grace of God through Christ is not limited to any nation. It's for all nations, all races, all people, all places. Everybody you meet is a person that was created in the image of God. Everybody you meet is a person who has squandered that image and like a sheep has gone astray. Everyone you meet is a person for whom Christ's precious blood was shed. Every person you meet. This is what he accomplished. He opened the door for all come and all are welcome at this table and finally the lion lamb redeemer purchased a kingdom of priests what a phrase the kingdom part means that we have one king one lord one master one boss the one who sits enthroned the lamb lion lord jesus the christ and this Lord has made us priests. Priests one to another. Priests now and forever have had two main jobs. To represent before God people. 
And we have that role to lift one another and the world before God in prayer. And in beautiful scenes in Revelation, the fragrance of heaven were the prayers of God's people. That's the role of a priest. When you pray those prayers that can't be uttered in your closet, it's wafting to heaven. When you pray around a, a dirty table with friends on a Wednesday night, when you pray in your Sunday school class, when you pray with your family, when you're lifting people to God, you're being a priest. It's the most important thing we do. And the priest's other job is to represent before people God. To bear witness to the aliveness of Jesus and to share the reason for the hope that we have within us. Friends, today as we come to this table, as we come together, my prayer is that you will pray deep prayers of gratitude to our one-of-a-kind, unique Lord who is the lion and the lamb, the one that breaks the riddle of the world, the one that offers life. And I pray as you eat and drink that you will recommit yourself to a life, the life of the priest, coming before God for each other, for your neighbors in the world. And for sharing with others the reason for the hope that's beating in your heart. Friends, as we prepare to come to this table, let us pray. Our good and our holy God, we thank you. We thank you that the veil has been rent and that you have allowed us, through the witness of others, to see into the very heart of the universe. That you've revealed yourself to us. You're your sinful creatures. God, that you came to us, to this earth, to give us life, and that you gave us this table to remember how precious that life is. As we eat and drink today, Lord, we pray that we would experience your Holy Spirit's presence among us, that you would draw us near as we draw near, and we would be changed in your presence. Lord, this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Kurt Randall, if you'd come, come forward and help, you'd stand.